with me. Thank you, Lord, for this word this morning, this gospel truth. We just pray that as you call each of us by name, you will speak to us what we need to hear through your word and the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to be with you this morning and um, to ponder <clears throat> this uh, story of Jesus and his first disciples. So um, we're not quite out of the first chapter of John yet, which is fun. Um, it's an incredible chapter. And we're moving now, though, from the grand overture of the first half of the chapter into the story. And um, last week's text was just spectacular. Um, I highly commend you reading John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18, over and over and over again. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. <clears throat> and we have seen his glory, full of grace and truth. He's at the Father's side. Um, this is, in a sense, a compact version of the gospel story, of the word that was there from creation and even before, now becoming flesh. Nobody ever could have thought of it. This is nobody's idea but God's. And the gospel story kind of works like that. If you just can imagine God coming close, God stepping in, that's the gospel story. Uh, that's the gospel movement. That's how God acts. He's stepping in to the flesh, and he's moving decisively into our world, breaking in. And that's the good news. Um, and uh, this is a, a moment now where we're turning from the kind of the overture. You know what an overture is uh, to a, you know, a, an opera or a symphony. It kind of gives you the, it's like the, it's like the cliff notes. You know, you get little hints of the rest of, this, of the music right there up in the front. So if you listen to the overture, more than likely you're going to hear the same things later on in the grand work of things. So that's an overture. And, and kind of the, the, the first part of, of uh, the first chapter of John's a little bit like that. These great, amazing truths that that John is telling us now, as we move into the actual story, we're going to hear them crop up again. And so this is kind of a transition point where, where we're moving now into the description of who Jesus is, now in, into watching him in action. And uh, what we're going to find right here in our, in our gospel reading this morning is we move from the call of the disciples, which essentially starts in, in verse 35 and then moves forward to essentially the end of the chapter. If you have your Bibles with you, you can follow along. But what you're going to find here as we move forward is kind of a tumble of titles for Jesus. Here's a list just in this first couple verses, Lamb of God, Elect One, Rabbi, Messiah, Son of God, King of Israel, Son of Man. They just kind of tumble out in this chapter, and that's a little unusual in the other gospel stories to kind of hold back on that just a little bit. But John is introducing us to these themes early, just like he has started off the, the, the whole book with kind of a big bang of a lot of stuff that describes Jesus. More than the disciples could ever have known yet. And I like to reflect on that just for a second because that's part of what the, the word becoming flesh is all about. Our head would explode if, 
if this was just cramming information into it about the kind of person that God is. He's so gracious in stepping into our world with all of his capacity and yet feeding us just what we can handle. That's how gracious and merciful he is. So John is giving us a bit of a gift in letting these kind of titles of Jesus, these qualities of Jesus kind of tumble out, be even before we really even know what's going on yet. And we're gonna see that happen with the way that he calls out the disciples and the way that he calls out us too. He always knows a little bit more than we do. In fact, he knows a lot more than we do about our own lives. And what, because he's so gracious and merciful, that's, a, that's good news. He's working with each one of us patiently. Um, these titles, by the way, all of these, Lamb of God, Chosen One, Rabbi, Messiah, Son of God, King of Israel, Son of Man, all of those titles that kind of come tumbling forth here, and we don't even really need to know what they are yet. Here's the point. They are coming from Israel's story. So each one of these titles and each one of these ideas is known by the Jewish community at this time because for the previous two or 3,000 years, God was patiently unfolding his nature to the Jewish people. What kind of God is he? What kind of qualities does this God have? And the only way we know it is because it comes forth in actual circumstances and in actual events. We know God is a savior because he saves. We know God is a deliverer because he delivered Israel out of slavery. We know God is merciful because he forgives Israel's sin. We know God is a king because he rules in justice. And so all of these terms that are coming to us now as we move into the gospel story come out of Israel's experience. And that's an analogy for all of us to keep in mind because he's working not only in the nation of Israel this way, he's working in you this way to reveal himself in the midst of your hopes, your dreams, your sins, your failures, just like what happened to Israel. And so I wanna pause here for, more, for a moment, just ask us, is this maybe a kind of a word of challenge to some of us to reflect on the words and the names that you would use for God that come out of your life's journey. Savior, deliverer, conqueror, friend, judge, holy one. There are so many ways of describing God. What are the ones that speak to you? The light, hmm? the, light the truth. I mean, these are personal words, and it's just good, and the reason I want to emphasize this is because as Jesus calls his disciples here, these are very personal, small things. We've, lear weren't, we've learned about the logos, the word from beginning of time. That's a big idea. Now we're hearing about Andrew, a guy. And it's a little closer to home. <laughs> you know, it's a little bit, it's a little bit more uh, normal. And I'm asking us to consider that too, that God, as he's calling you, what 
are the words that you would describe from your own personal journey? If you've never done it before, you may not even be able to think of something right off the bat. That's okay. So here we are in verse 35, and here's John the Baptist again. This is the next day, and we've already heard him say in, verse, in the previous day, which is verse 39, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And here he is again, the second day, and he's standing there, and, and you can just kind of see the next day John was standing with two of his disciples. Very ordinary kind of thing to do. John had a lot of disciples, Right, John was, this is, by the way, not to be confusing, it, it wasn't my idea here, but when I'm using John today, I'm talking about John the Baptist, not John the author of the gospel, all right? So, so John, the ba- John today is John the Baptist. John the Baptist is standing over two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walks by. It's, you can just kind of see it. I mean, John is already, like, amazed. He is in total amazement of Jesus. And he's standing with his disciples, and, and Jesus is walking by, and he's like, yeah, that's the guy. I mean, you ever been in, an, in, you know, in front of a famous person? You know, I, I, the first time I remember meeting anybody famous was Walter Payton, who was the running back for the Chicago Bears. And when I was a kid, I just don't think there was a human being that was probably closer to the, you know, divine, if I could be somewhat sacrilegious, than Walter Payton, the Bears running back. Uh, he occupied my dreams. I was Walter Payton every Saturday when I played football on the playground. And uh, I got to go get his autograph, and he was in this, it wasn't a very, I mean, it was kind of, there was a long line, and he was in a kind of bus or something, and he had to kind of walk through. And I, I was amazed that that was Walter Payton standing right in front of me and signing his name and giving me this paper. You know, I don't know what your analogy is, but John was amazed at Jesus. You know, if, if sometimes when you read these older texts, you can kind of lose that. Behold, the Lamb of God. You know, that's not what it was, <laughs> that's not what he was doing, you know. He was like, wow. You know, John the Baptist would never have said this, but, you know, holy smokes, you know. He was amazed, just like we would be. Why was he amazed? Because, you know, John started out his life um, with, uh, with a lot of promise. You know, his, his father uh, sang songs about him, uh, and you can read all about it in Luke chapter 1. And, um, boy, I don't know if that just got taken right out of my notes or what, but there, maybe I'm ahead of myself. But you know what he says in Luke chapter 1? Um, uh, Zechariah, John's dad, talks about, um, talks about what John is going to see someday, and it's glorious. You know, he said, you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. You will give knowledge of salvation to the people for the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high and give light to the world. And now he's here. Just like Walter Payton. <laughs> you know, the, the person that he's been thinking about and dreaming about all his life is there and now he's amazed. There he is. He found Jesus very attractive, if I could put it that way. Very attractive. And he says, look, behold, the Lamb of God. He, it, there must have been very powerful 
emotion and attraction in John's voice because his disciples leave him immediately to follow him. John's attracted to Jesus. Are you attracted to Jesus? We find so many other things to be attracted to, but are you attracted to him? Do you find Jesus attractive? How many ways can you describe him? Have you tried? I invite you to come to Oasis tonight. We're going to do this. We're just going to think of all the ways we can describe Jesus. You're my brother, my friend, my anchor, the Lion of Judah, the Lamb of God, the Holy One of Israel, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Oh, I find that so attractive. John found it attractive. I want, I urge you to find Jesus attractive. Say his name when you're falling asleep. Say it when you wake up. Say it in all the different words that matter to you. It's a great way of finding Jesus attractive. Jesus isn't just pointing the way. He is the way, John will tell us later on, John the author. John the author will say, will quote Jesus, who's saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is what it's all about. He's the center of the action. He's the heart of the story. Without him, it's pointless. Behold, the Lamb of God, John says. The Lamb of God. It's the second time he says it. He just can't get away from it. Now, Lamb of God is kind of a complex symbol in the Bible. And I don't want to kind of weigh us down with covering all of it. I just want to highlight a couple. In fact, it's not really clear from the text exactly what part of the metaphor John is referring to. You know, metaphors are like snowballs. Not that there were a lot of snowballs in the ancient Near East, but, you know, it's kind of like it starts small, but as, as soon as it starts to tumble down the hill, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and that's what metaphors are like. They just keep taking up more and more meaning. And, you know, sometimes it's really clear what aspect, um, you know, the metaphor is relating to, and other times it just isn't. It's just part of, you know, uh, my love is like a red, red rose. Well, what does that mean? Well, I, it means all that you can think of about flowers and roses and all the rest of it. Jesus is the Lamb of God, and the, there's a lot that comes forth in there. Here's just a few. You might think of the Passover lamb. That's something we'd be familiar with because that's part of the, uh, the metaphor that's at work in our Eucharistic prayers. This is the lamb that was slain by, the, uh, by Israel just before the night before, they were brought out of Egypt. And remember, the Lord says, sacrifice the lamb and sprinkle the blood over the doorpost so that the angel of death will pass over you. That's why it's called the Passover lamb. That's about covering and protecting. And then over time, because lambs were also used in sacrifices, the Passover lamb of protection and covering also develops a little bit of a momentum, you know, think of that snowball, of sacrifice for sin. And that's why the Apostle Paul will eventually say, thousands of years later, in 1 Corinthians, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. You'll hear that again today. Here's another dimension of the lamb metaphor from Isaiah 53. It's a familiar chapter to many of us. You will hear it again in Holy Week, where all the iniquity and all of the sin of the world is laid on this lamb who sacrificed as an atonement. He bore the sin of many, it says in Isaiah 53. The lamb slain from the foundation of the world so that we don't have to die 
as a consequence of our sin. Rather, he in our place dies for us and takes that punishment. That's an aspect of the Lamb of God. Here's one that's less familiar to a lot of people, but is very likely what John may have been talking about, John the Baptist, okay? That's the conquering lamb. Are you familiar with that, that part of it? You know, there's a big tradition about the conquering lamb. I'm still learning about it myself because we don't really think about lambs as conquerors, you know? Aslan's a lion, right? That's what conquers, you know, the lamb. I mean, I don't know of any football team that's called the lambs. <laughs> you know, just not common for us. But at this period of time, it was. There was conquering lambs. You know, go figure. But it was around, Jewish people at this time were writing about this. And in the Revelation, the last book of the Bible, which was also written by John, the author, okay, this is a big metaphor. I mean, we have it all the way through Revelation many times. The lamb slain was seen with seven spirits. Worthy is the lamb to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might. We have the lamb... um, Uh, fighting and conquering enemies. We have the lamb being worshiped and glorified. We have the lamb as the temple where the river flowing from and light shining forth. The triumphant conquering lamb. So you can see that this lamb of God metaphor is really powerful. And John sees, now John can't possibly know, and in fact would later be somewhat puzzled by the fact that Jesus was, would die, that, that there would be some other note other than triumph. By the, so most likely what John saw in Jesus was the victor, the conquering one. Actually, these two things come together later on in John the author's letter. He writes three letters. And I found this very interesting in 1 John chapter 3, uh, verses 5 and 8. I'll just put these two together, and you can hear both of these notes coming together. You know that Jesus appeared to take away sins. For the, and then he compares him, uh, the lamb, to, um, to a conqueror. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the work of the devil So nobody really understood the magnitude of what they were saying at this time. John probably didn't know all that Jesus would do. He may not have been able to fathom that Jesus would die on a cross and rise again and ascend into heaven. None of us can fathom all there is to Jesus. But the word was made flesh and dwelt among us so that we could, as John says a couple verses earlier, receive fullness. We can receive from his fullness. So I want you to look at Jesus and see in him the forgiveness of your sin. I want you to see him taking your sin on himself. That's what he's done. I want you to see him removing the sin from the world, from your life, destroying the works of the devil. That's part of what it means to behold the lamb, is to behold the lamb and all that he does. Behold him taking your sin in your place, destroying the work of the devil. That's the beginning of faith. Put your faith in the one that John is pointing to. John wants you to look at him. Put your faith in him. 
And in fact, that's exactly what the disciples do. As we move forward into the story a little bit, we'll see that uh, they do exactly that. This is a, gives you a little idea of what is faith. Faith is placing your trust in. It's following. It's going where Jesus is. Those are all kind of dimensions of faith. And you can see that faith always comes after the gospel. They hear the gospel and they follow. And that's just the way it works. God came to announce the good news. Behold, the Lamb of God is here. And it allows us the gracious opportunity to follow him in his footsteps. So they've, these disciples now, these two disciples are standing with John. They've been taught by him. They know him. They see that something's very, very different. They hear what John says. They hear him say and point, behold, the Lamb of God. And so they follow. And finally, in this great buildup, Jesus talks. <laughs> this is a moment we've been waiting for. And it's very interesting and very Jewish that the first utterance out of Jesus' mouth is a question. This is what rabbis do. You know, the old famous saying, you know, the disciple goes and says to his rabbi, Rabbi, why are you always teaching us in questions? And the rabbi thinks for a second and he says, why not? You know, you just can't get away from it. He turns and he sees, and Jesus, this is beautiful. He sees. He turns and he sees, and he beholds, and what he beholds, he also loves. It's so beautiful. That's what it says here. Jesus turned and saw them. He beheld them. He loves them. Can you imagine what was stored up in those eyes? He was waiting for this moment of entering into people's lives, and here now he engages. And you can imagine that when he turned and he saw, I can't imagine what those disciples must have felt when Jesus fixed his eyes on them with that reservoir of love and desire and passion and knowledge of what he would do for them. And he's so gracious. And he says, what are you seeking? This is the very start. And I keep thinking of what John, the author, says later on. He has Jesus say, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And this is the way he's doing it. He turns and he sees and he says, what do you want? What are you seeking? How many years had he waited to say that. It's very hard for me not to think back to Genesis 1. Because in Genesis chapter 1, the first time God speaks to a person, it's also a question. Do you know what that question was? What have you done? What have you done? And then the second question, where are you? God was seeking. He was seeking all the way along, and he starts out the whole journey by saying, what have you done? And here, the God of the universe, the same one that asked that question, has the blessing and privilege of coming to Andrew and saying, what do you want? 
it's hard for me not to hear the echo of the Garden of Eden in there where they were exiled from the garden. They were exiled from their home and now Jesus is inviting them back home again. And that's exactly what they want. They want to know, where are you staying? Can you see how God is bringing that back together again? The exile, the sin, the blackness, the failure, the lostness, the question. And now we begin to see the resolution of God leaving himself, his own throne, and entering into our world and saying, what do you want? Come follow me home. How satisfying this is to have Jesus say, come and see. What they're asking for is what's permanent, these two disciples. We want to find out, Lord, where you are. We want to find out where you're staying. We want to find out what's permanent, what's satisfying, what overcomes sin and death. It reminds me of the song that we sing sometimes, where Jesus is, tis heaven there. And I think that's what Jesus was beckoning them into. What are you seeking? What are you seeking, Jesus would ask. And maybe it's hard to say right off the bat. These are hard questions sometimes. We may not have ever paused or stopped long enough to really ask the question. You know, the disciples had been with John for a long time, John the Baptist. And so when Jesus asked them, what are you seeking, maybe they had a bit of a head start but nobody really does. They needed Jesus right there to kind of help coach them along. Jesus didn't answer questions. He just said, hey, come and see. You may not even know what you want, but nonetheless, Jesus is going to say, hey, come and see. Come and follow. And then they do. It's about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. It could have been the Sabbath day, which means, you know, they needed a place to, to settle down. And the Bible is silent on what they must have talked about. Can you imagine what a great evening that would have been? the two disciples and Jesus hanging out together at that time. I want to close here with just a, 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 just a brief look at Peter. Andrew, you know, God bless him, Peter's brother, through his witness, right, the church grows 50% just right in that one day. <laughs> I mean, just think about it. The church for a moment was two people, you know. Andrew and who knows, maybe the beloved disciple John there. And then all of a sudden, Andrew's like, I'm, I want to tell my brother about this. You know, he's a great brother. And that's often how the kingdom spreads, just like that. He says, like, I want to go tell my brother. Um, and John says, hey, we found the anointed one. It's funny, we find the Messiah, and then John says, that means Christ. We need to go the other way around. We need to say, oh, Christ, that means, you know, the Messiah. That means the anointed one. It means somebody set apart for a special purpose, uh, and even more. Messiah was like the guy that was going to come and rescue the Jewish people from the Romans and a lot of other things. So it was a big deal to say we found the Messiah. Interestingly, Peter would be connected to that confession later on down the road when he calls Jesus the Messiah. And again, we have Jesus. Uh, he brought Peter to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him. The Greek word there is a little different than the first one. This is looked with intention. He really looked at him. So this is the way that Jesus is for us. Jesus looked at him intently, and this Jesus who made all things, and through him all things were made, and without him not anything was made, that Jesus looks intently at Peter, and he can see the beginning and the end of Peter. 
He knows Peter's whole story. He knows your whole story from beginning to end. And what he does is he says, I'm gonna change your name. I'm gonna change it the way it would have sounded to Peter was I'm gonna call you Rocky. That's what the word means, the rock, you know? He doesn't explain it yet. He doesn't tell Peter why his name's being changed from Shimon, a perfectly good Jewish name, to Cephas, Peter, Rock. Um, He doesn't say why. He's just gentle and humble. Peter's not fully baked yet. He knows that. None of us are fully baked. But Jesus can look at you intently, and he can see into the beginning and the end of your whole life. And he can speak something new about you that you never, ever knew existed before. That's just part of who you are. God sees you this way. He sees who you will become. Paul says those he called, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Do you see how Jesus moves into his ministry so beautifully, so lovely, so graciously? Isn't he attractive? Don't you want to know him? Don't you want him to know you? We can know him as the lamb bearing the weight of our sin. We can see him taking sin away and conquering the enemy. We can see him seeing us, naming us, calling something forth, creating something that isn't even there yet as far as we can tell. I just want to leave us with these words from the prophet Isaiah that we read earlier in our reading. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Amen.